Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is a professor, an author, a researcher, and an expert on social media, disinformation, and political discourse. Darren Linville is an associate professor at Clemson University in the Department of Communications. His research explores state-sponsored social media disinformation and its influence on civil and political discourse. In addition to his academic publications, Dr. Linville has written for The Washington Post and Rolling Stone. Darren Linville, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks for having me, Kate. It's great to be here. And joining us again this week is Emmy Award-winning producer and Belmont University instructor Jennifer Duck. Last week, Jen raised the important issue of misinformation and disinformation on social media in the home stretch of the 2020 presidential campaign, and we asked her to come back for a deeper dive. Professor Linville is her mentor at Clemson University, where Jen is completing her PhD, so we thought it'd be informative to have them both on together to talk about this important topic. Jen, thanks for joining us again this week. So great to be here. Thanks for having me back. All right, so let's dive in. On October 28th, uh, which is coming up soon, six days before the election, the CEOs of the big three, Facebook, Google, and Twitter, are all going to testify before the Senate Commerce Committee. We don't know what that's going to look like, if it's going to be in person, or how it's going to do with all of the COVID crisis that's happening on the Hill, but we know that it's scheduled and it's supposed to happen. So that means that Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, and Google CEO Sundar Pichai will be in the hot seat once again to answer questions about how social media misinformation and disinformation spreads online. So Darren, my first question is for you. Is that a little too late? Well, I don't know if it's ever too late. It's it's certainly late for Google. There's been Similar meetings in the past that uh, the Google CEO has not attended, and, and they've literally had to have an empty seat present with his nameplate there, but no CEO. So, you know, at least Google's showing up this time. But for all of them, better late than never, I suppose. Yeah, and it's really interesting. I'm going to jump in, Darren, because a lot of people don't realize Google also owns YouTube. So that's 2 billion plus videos a day that are shared on YouTube, right? So, I mean, it's not just Google when we're talking about Google. They're they're bigger than just... It's the empire. <laughs> it's the and, empire, right? And YouTube is YouTube is really the, the nexus of disinformation. I mean, when, when we talk about disinformation on other platforms, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or, or Instagram, you know, it all goes back to YouTube eventually because in many cases, these disinformation accounts that are spreading spreading things on, on other platforms, they're linking back to YouTube. So I don't think we talk about YouTube enough. So I'm, I'm very glad to hear the Sundar Char is actually going to be there for this event on the 28th. Oh, that's interesting thinking about YouTube that way, because uh, we often hear in the media, and I often think about 
with grandparents and, and friends that Facebook is the big bad monster, but YouTube is, is the epicenter, it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, YouTube has flown under the radar for far too long, in my opinion. Well, maybe October 28th will shed some sunlight on that. All right. So, Dare to dream. Right. <laughs> it's still the United States Senate, so yeah. we'll see. All right. Let's talk about Russia and their role in all of this. Darren, back in April, you co-authored a piece for the Washington Post under the headline, Yes, Russia Spreads Coronavirus Lies, But They Were Made in America. So talk about that column and how Russian disinformation and misinformation has evolved since the 2016 election. Sure. It is. It has always been the case, going back well before the dawn of social media, that that Russia, in its tactics against the United States, in its active measures, has taken advantage of existing division in existing conversations happening in our country. They study us. They know what's going on. They know what buttons to press. That was certainly true in 2016. And it absolutely is is true today. So what Russia and other actors as well, Cuba was recently named in a, in a Twitter release of data. China does this, Iran, many, many other countries, Venezuela. But they're in, in many cases, they're engaging in conversations that are already happening. It, it is certainly true that the United States is its own worst enemy. So back in 2016, the IRA, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg that was made famous by the Mueller report, responsible for a lot of the disinformation surrounding the 2016 election. They had their own art department. I believe they still have their own art department that creates content, that creates memes for their social media account, for their fake social media accounts. But <laughs> they have to use it less and less because the United States itself is responsible for the creation of of so much, so much garbage, so much misinformation that bad actors can just harness what we've already created and put it to work. We create it for a lot of different reasons. A lot of folks out there create some of the content that bad actors use for fun. You know, the left likes to troll the right and the right likes to troll the left to try to prove that they're morally superior somehow. But there's also a big set out there that creates misinformation for profit. Folks like the Alex Joneses of the world that have products that they like to sell. In the case of Alex Jones, it's various health foods and vitamins. And there's a lot of money to be made in that. If you can make money off misinformation, there's always going to be somebody to do that. You touched on the IRA, which I think is really important. Can you just explain to listeners what Russia's Internet Research Agency does exactly? How do they operate? How sophisticated are their methods? Because I think that's something that you know very well, but it is it is a little hard to understand from the outside. Sure. So here at Clemson, we've been studying the work of the Internet Research Agency since uh, 2017. When folks first started talking about them was actually 2015. A New York Times columnist, Adrian Chen, wrote a, a fantastic piece called The Agency that talked about the, the work they were doing. At that time, they were only just starting to engage in conversations here, here in the U.S. The Internet Research Agency is, in many ways, uh, a marketing firm, for lack of a better term, that started 
creating fake social media accounts to engage in conversations in Russia back in 2013, 2014. They were very active in conversations in the Ukraine and conversations about the Ukraine, especially the start of Russian intervention there. And they used some of what they learned from the work they did targeting their own people and the Ukrainian people to start to target Americans. And not just Americans, they've also targeted all of the West in, in content that we downloaded based off of over 3,800 Twitter accounts that the House Intelligence Committee was given by Twitter. We identified accounts that were active in not only Russian and English, but also German, French, Italian, a number of accounts in Italian. We actually are partially responsible for a federal investigation in Italy into Russian intervention and elections in that country, and even Arabic and and a few Spanish accounts. So the Russian Internet Research Agency has targeted the entire West, especially NATO countries. And they're very active on social media in, in creating fake accounts, troll accounts, to spread disinformation, to intervene in real conversations here in America and elsewhere, and try to push those conversations in more extreme directions, in more divisive directions, to distract us from what's going on in Russia, so that Putin has more of a free hand in in the Ukraine, so that he can get away with poisoning his adversaries without the United States having any meaningful response. But they, they, they go beyond just social media accounts. I think what they're most famous for is the creation of social media accounts. But in 2016, they did much more than that. They, they had podcasts. Uh, they created an entire fake organization called Black Matters US. This was uh, an organization that purported to be part of the Black Lives Matter conversation. And it had a website. It had a Facebook page, an Instagram page, a Twitter page. It had a podcast. It had a newsletter. It had a, had a page you could donate to their mission. They put on real events here in the United States that were staged using internet research agency money. And so while it has primarily been a a social media effort, it's, it's, it's gone well beyond that as well. It's actually not called the Internet Research Agency anymore. uh, It's actually been rolled into a larger organization, the Federal News Agency, which is owned by Russian oligarch and billionaire Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin is called Putin's chef. He he got his start as, as a cook and caterer for Putin, I think, in the 90s and quickly rose to power and now owns a number of companies that many of which serve the party line. So the IRA, now Federal News Agency, is not officially a state organization, but that's splitting hairs when you're talking about Russian oligarchs. Something else that you have been working on at Clemson with your your colleague there, Professor Patrick Warren, I want to talk about because I'm a little miffed about it. But you guys created this mechanism to help stop these bad actors posing as real people. And it's called the Spot the Troll Quiz. 
Um, and it's frustrating because I did not get all of them correct. But we're going to post the link in our show notes because we want our listeners to definitely go try it out and really just to learn from it. But talk about the Spot the Troll quiz. Well, first of all, Katie, I want to say it's the journey, not the destination. Yeah, well, <laughs> I like to score. I like an A+. <laughs> I don't care how you did on the quiz. I am just proud and pleased that that you went on that journey and learned from it. Because uh, frankly, we had some trick questions that are really just meant to prod you into thinking a little bit more about how you engage on social media and what voices online, which messages you repeat and, and what voices you engage with. So the Spot the Troll quiz is a series of eight social media profiles. Some of them are real people and some of them are Russian internet research agency accounts. These eight profiles are taken from Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And the reason we created this is my colleague Patrick Warren and I, uh, we've spent the past several years understanding, learning the, the strategy and the tactics of the internet research agency, and more broadly, disinformation from other countries as well. And we've learned a lot. And We've put some of that understanding into identifying ongoing disinformation. We learned to identify accounts that we could attribute to the Internet Research Agency on Twitter. But at the end of the day, we know that playing whack-a-mole <laughs> with social media accounts is never going to win the war, whether it's us doing it or Twitter or Facebook or, or the U.S. government. You're never going to stop disinformation that way because the cost is so low for the other side. It is, it's an asymmetrical war. And it, it's in the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians' favor because the costs both of creating this sort of content is extremely low and of being caught. We have not engaged in any kind of meaningful punishment. We've shut down social media accounts. So what? They'll create new ones. We've given out indictments. Those people will never see trial. And even conversations at the political level are, have been pretty cordial. So we're not going to stop disinformation from that side. We wanted to make this more of a attack it from every angle. And so we wanted to at least help in our small way, create users that are more resilient, create uh, a, a, a base of users that is less likely to simply hit the retweet button or the share button. Because fundamentally, Disinformation doesn't work unless we spread it. <laughs> Disinformation comes, I, sh I should point out, it comes in all forms. I mean, just look at RT and Sputnik. Those are corporations that have, you know, multi-million dollar budgets and are on every cable network in the United States. Still disinformation. But on social media, it only works if we help spread it. We want to teach people to be a little bit more critical and a little more thoughtful, and a little less likely to, to hit that button. So I'll tell our listeners that there are eight different social media profiles. I only got six of eight, right? <laughs> Embarrassingly. Um, That's average. You did average, actually. So I hope that our listeners are more critical than me and, and do better. But these trolls, they're super sophisticated and getting more they so. Are. And that's what that's another reason we did it. We want people to realize how real these accounts look. There are a couple of accounts 
uh, fake accounts in the troll quiz that we've been tracking users with Google, not individual users, but, you know, tracking usage over Google Analytics. And there's a couple of accounts where it's basically a coin flip on whether or not people got them right or wrong. And that's scary to me that these accounts are that sophisticated, that you're as likely to think it's a real person as, as a fake account. And I think on that note too, full transparency, I mean, I'm studying with Darren and taking this class and my colleagues, we got like the exclusive first look and two of us didn't get all the answers, right? So we are in it. We're in deep. We know what to look for. And I think that's, that's the point. These trolls and bots are super sophisticated. They use profile photos that look like someone you want to trust. That's super intentional that they do that, but they, they really prey on us like through emotion and relatability. Some of those profile pictures look like someone you went to high school with or someone you want to be friends with. So can you talk a little bit about that? (laughs) The folks that do this work are professionals. It's not Boris and Natasha. You know, this isn't spycraft. (laughs) It's it's just guerrilla marketing. And they know what is appealing to people. They know just how attractive to be along a, a, a wide spectrum of variables. And they know what kind of content is going to cause people to hit that retweet button or hit that share button. And every time it happens, even if it's what they're sharing or or what they're retweeting, isn't itself divisive, even if it's something completely innocent and oftentimes even positive. I mean, I often see Russian trolls sharing content that I agree with, that, that I want to share myself. And, but every time you do, you're giving that profile that you're sharing a bigger platform. You're giving them access to your followers and your followers' followers so that they're going to pick up followers themselves and they're going to be better situated and more legitimate in the future to spread the divisive messages that will follow on that positive message. So it's, it's important to look at the profile of accounts that you're, you're thinking of sharing their messages from it and, and realize that, you know, not every stranger actually has your best interests at heart. Yeah. And on that note, you, you brought up something this week that I just cannot stop thinking about. And it was a great analogy, but we oftentimes go online and don't have that healthy skepticism of online people as we do as strangers in person, you know, like stranger danger that your mom teaches you as a child or, you know, don't take candy from strangers, but we go online and we just kind of trust anyone. But how does that work in terms of foreign governments spreading misinformation and disinformation to the American people that trust in terms of us just not being so media literate or maybe having that healthy skepticism when we're going on social media and just retweeting or posting or liking posts. Yeah, I I think there's a fine line that we need to fall on between healthy skepticism and trust. I think in the real world, we understand that line very well. In the real world, when you go out in public, you fundamentally understand that, you know, 99% 0.9% of people that you're going to see mean you no harm, that maybe you'd even be friends if you took the time to to stop and chat, and that most people aren't out to hurt you in any way. But you still engage with strangers differently. Even though you know they're probably not going to hurt you, you still engage with them differently. 
if you, if you if you were walking around with a microphone, you wouldn't hand that microphone to any stranger. But on social media, we do. We hand our microphone willy nilly to to anyone that we see that we happen to agree with, and that's just a fundamental difference between engaging in the digital world and engaging in the real world. And I think we just need people to understand that the rules in the digital world are the same as the real world in a lot of ways that that we take for granted in the real world. So, Darren, we begin every episode with a quote from the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan that was used by the Vice President, Vice President Pence, during last week's vice presidential debate, unattributed. But the quote is, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. And we're grateful to our many eagle-eyed listeners that reached out and pointed that out to us as we were all watching. But we also remind our listeners that words have power and words have consequences. So I want to ask both of you, but Jen, I'll start with you. I want to ask from your perspective as a professor, an academic, a journalist, can you talk a little bit about how people tend to forget this and let down their guard online in terms of what's fact and what's fiction and the stranger danger that's not there? I think it's really important, and we're hitting on this, that healthy skepticism. So there's that healthy skepticism, and then there's that hypercriticism. And I'm seeing this in all the roles in terms of being a professor, in terms of being a student, in terms of being a journalist for 17 years. And I touched a little bit on this in last week's episode, but sometimes journalists don't do the best job explaining how a story gets on air or gets online. And the reason most of the time is because as a journalist, you're trained, it's like ingrained in you to make sure you're serving the public, acting as a watchdog, and the story is not about you, the journalist. So I think that curtain is not pulled sometimes on how a story gets on air through editors and through all of these checks and balances. Like it's not just, I could write anything and it's on air or online, but social media has made me think a lot harder about this because social media, they don't have any gatekeepers. They don't have any editors and it's really different. So if you Google the New York times ethical standards, which is what I made my students do this week, you will find pages upon pages of ethics and standards that the New York Times abides by. And I showed this to my students and it really clicked finally. This is what journalists are abiding by. They have these codes of ethics. They have editors. There's a lot of checks and balances before something is published, even in breaking news. And every news organization I have worked at had editors overseeing my work. And I have worked everywhere from national networks to the smallest local news station in central California in my 20s. And I still had an editor that was checking and and making sure, you know, we were getting all of our facts right. So I think that sometimes gets lost. And that is very, very important, the role of journalists. But on social media, there are no rules. Anyone can post anything and claim it's true. And they can claim they're a journalist and they can claim a lot of different things. And there's no gatekeeping. And we really have to pause as users, as all of us, as social media users. We have to pause before we post. We shouldn't spread that misinformation or that disinformation knowingly or unknowingly. And the spot the troll quiz was one way to do this, just to show awareness. Wow. Maybe I don't know who that is or who I'm posting or retweeting or who I'm subscribing to on YouTube. 
maybe I should rely more on the reliable sources. You know, I'm going to go old school, the Associated Press and the New York Times and others, because there are standards in place. And I just think that gets lost a lot in all of this. And especially with the rhetoric being thrown around about news organizations, you have to think about why politicians want to paint news organizations a certain way. They don't like the watchdog. They don't like the fact checking, but that doesn't mean it's not true. So you still should trust journalists. As I'm teaching a bunch of first-time voters from all over the country, it really clicked on me that, wow, I, even as a teacher, don't explain how journalists operate as a gatekeeper. We've really had to like nail that down and go through it a few times so they understand you can trust certain sources. Not everything out there is out to get you. That's so valuable to teach your students, consumers of journalism and journalists, but particularly consumers that should be a part of our basic education in, in middle school and high school. Darren, last year we had Professor Kathleen Hall Jameson on the show. It was one of my favorite episodes, and she talked about her book. And we're going to play a clip of what she said about Russia's efforts during the 2016 election. The Russians got lucky. The highly polarized environment, lots of divisions already at play. They didn't create them. They exploited them. And when you exploit those divisions and you increase the sense that we're at odds against each other, that anxiety works against the incumbent party and the incumbent party's heir apparent, Hillary Clinton. So, Darren, first, do you agree with Professor Jameson's assessment that the Russian cyber attacks in 2016 were designed to help Donald Trump? And what, if anything, has Congress or the Trump administration done to make sure that the same thing doesn't happen in 2020? So I I certainly agree with her to a point. There's, There's no question that the Russians took advantage of existing divisions. I, I wouldn't necessarily go so far as to say that they, they got lucky. A lot of these divisions have always been there, certainly a little more extreme than they've been in the past, but they're divisions that have existed for, for generations. And I'm not sure it's true that they got lucky because they understood those divisions so well, and they knew where to put their thumb on the scales. I mean, it is impossible to know exactly what effect they had. And, and, and I, I would be the last person to suggest that they actually had a fundamental impact on the election. There's no test to control group study we can run on the election to know what effect the Russians had on that. But I think it's certainly true that, and, and we have tested this, that they had an effect on conversations. They made certain more extreme individuals, real people, more central to conversations. And they engaged in those conversations organically and fluidly and almost almost artisanally in some cases. And that isn't about luck. That's about skill and and studying your opponent, something that they, they borrow from the KGB before them. This is these sorts of active measures are things that have that are talents that are accrued over over a great deal of time. And so, and and I think that's doubly true. You can see when you compare Russian disinformation to disinformation coming from from other countries. I mean, there there is no comparison. The Russians are orders of magnitude better in terms of gaining followers, engaging in very particular communities in ways that are very difficult to see, and spreading a given message. So. Yeah, I agree with her to a point that the the Russians definitely took advantage of existing divisions, but I'm not sure it was about luck. 
Now, what's been done since then? The life of a disinformation operator is certainly harder than it was in 2016 in a variety of ways. In 2016, the Russians paid for Facebook ads in rubles. They can't do that anymore. <laughs> they they registered for social media accounts with Russian phone numbers. Right. They they can't do that anymore. In 2016, a lot of their accounts were very tightly networked together using smaller accounts in support of larger accounts. And, and there were certain tactics that they were using back then that they can't get away with anymore. A lot of the activity we've seen more recently, my colleague Patrick said that they they want to be influential but not memorable. And so they, they tend to have a lot more mid-sized accounts. Back in 2016, they had Twitter accounts that were over 150,000 followers and Instagram accounts that were even bigger than that. You don't see accounts that size with that level of influence anymore, but certainly you still see their, their skill at work. Their job has been made harder. A lot of people are watching. The federal government is watching. There's a lot of good work done by the FBI. I, I can point at two different cases in the past month that Twitter and Facebook have had to act on based off of FBI tips. There's a lot of work being done in the private sector by academics like ourselves and others. And there's also a lot of good work being done by the Army. I think the Army Cyber Command is one of the unsung heroes in, in this space. They, they don't get a lot of press for the work they do, but they're, they're doing a lot, of, a lot of good work in this space. In 2018, they actually shut down operations on the day of the midterm elections in St. Petersburg. And from what we can tell following uh, their cyber attack on IRA headquarters on that day, the the IRA had to disperse around disperse their operations around the city and, and you know no longer be in just one location. I had not so, heard that story. Yeah, a lot has been done since 2016, but I think there's a lot of work still ahead of us. The platforms like to take a FBI tip and shut down some accounts and then take a victory lap and try to get it in the in the media all they can. But honestly. There's certain threads that I think that they've lost, that they need to put some more time and investment into their their counterintelligence operations. We've identified r- Russian accounts that uh, have, have not been verified by Twitter, <laughs> even though I can tell you 15 different ways I know that, that it's a Russian account based off of years of study. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, and we've been talking a lot about Russia, but you examine misinformation and disinformation of a lot of different bad actors. You study many different countries and how they employ this misinformation and disinformation. So what are some of the efforts from other nations that you can talk about? What does someone like China do that's different? Sure. I I think China is one of the more interesting countries to juxtapose to to the work that, that Russia does. And in a lot of ways, I think it's it's sometimes more important to talk about Russia because Russia cares. Uh, they're more offensive in their work. I like to say that the China cares about things that are important to China when it comes to their disinformation. And Russia cares about things that are important to your neighbor. So a lot of disinformation coming out of China is oftentimes about, about face saving. So... Chinese disinformation talks about things that are important to China, like the Hong Kong protests, like 
COVID-19, like economic issues. They're more defensive in nature. So it's well known that China does not allow their people on Western platforms. They have a firewall around Western platforms. There are people that get around that platform, but as a percentage of their population, it's a very small percentage of Chinese that are that are present and active on on Facebook and Instagram and other mainstream Western platforms. So if the Chinese want their voice represented on these platforms, sometimes they have to engage in methods to actively put it there themselves. So if, if you want to find a fake Chinese account, just go to literally any Chinese embassy or consulate in the U.S., go to their Twitter page and look to see who's retweeting those posts. It's a lot of fake Chinese accounts Smart. because the Chinese people aren't doing it because they can't. So it's it's about perception. It's about making these voices look more legitimate. And we'll see that time and time again. Last fall, I worked with a journalist from the Wall Street Journal looking at the NBA manager of the Houston Rockets, Daryl Morey. He had the audacity uh, in October of last year of saying something positive about protests in Hong Kong, saying something positive about democracy. And the NBA has a relationship with China, more and more games being played in China. It's a relationship that's very important to to both China and the NBA. And China came down hard on on Daryl Morey for his comments. There were a thousand new accounts created every day for a week. Wow. And the first thing each of those accounts did was tweet at Daryl Morey, usually something nasty about his mother, of all things. Yikes. Yeah. Poor Daryl Morey's mom. But that is the sort of activity that you see coming out of China. This is an issue that's important to China uh, for a variety of reasons. The Chinese people aren't there to engage in that conversation to, to voice the Chinese perspective. And so it has to be created from whole cloth. What the Russians tend to do is, is much more sophisticated, engaging in very specific communities, whether it's the Black Lives Matter community, MAGA America, LGBTQ communities or Latino communities. They look like they are organically part of that community and, and they know exactly where to steal content from and what, what content is going to resonate with those communities. Other yes. actors are somewhere in between. Iran is still learning. They're they're more along the lines of of what Russia does, but not quite as sophisticated yet. Russia seems to know how to push buttons in the U.S. too. I remember, like my dad always said, "Don't talk religion or politics at the dinner table." And every Russian account seems to tackle race, religion, politics. <laughs> and my <laughs> dad would say that, and then we would talk about it. But it, it's really interesting because any way they can sow that chaos or that discourse in America, they will do it. And that's just something I've seen from working with you and studying this is that any button they can push, that's where that healthy skepticism has to come in again. Like, who is this posting this and why are they posting this? And those categories are just fascinating. Them posing as like a Black Lives Matter group or them posing on issues like abortion that are such hot topics and one issue voters are really drawn to or vaccines. I mean, I think they infiltrate those groups. Am I right to, to think that? Yeah, often. And, and beyond that, they go where the conversation is. Wherever the conversation on 
the major platforms is on a, on a given day. Like if it's about confirmation hearings for judicial appointment, that's where the Russians are going to be that day because that's where they're going to pick up engagement. That's where they're going to accrue followers. That's where they're going to have the, the biggest impact. That was one of the biggest lessons from the Spot the Troll quiz is that they constantly talk about the the button pushing issues and the hot issues. So I will forever remember that. So let's transition from the trolls to the platforms they rely on and could not exist without. Last year, we had Roger McNamee on the show, and Roger was an early investor in Facebook, recently wrote a book called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. And he said... There's something about the business model and algorithms of Facebook that allow bad actors to harm innocent people. So, Darren, do you agree with that? And if so, explain how that works. Oh, without question. To a degree, uh, I think it's true on, on all the platforms. The way the algorithms on each platform works is by taking advantage of fundamental human psychology. What are we attracted to and what is going to give us the greatest dopamine hit? And what are we going to create that is going to get other people to respond? And that's then what we're going to put out in the world to get, you know, people whose opinion we value, for whatever reason that may be, to respond to with likes and retweets and shares that will make us feel valuable. And then... That algorithm, which is created to engage on those primal urges, ends up putting us in these silos where our own opinion is just bounced back to us, but not just bounced back to us, it's amplified and often pushes us in a, in a more extreme direction. It might, that, that direction may be a direction we were already inclined to go. Certainly that's, that's a fact that that disinformation actors like the Russian IRA take take advantage of. If you're engaging with an account online that you disagree with, in my experience, that lowers the probability of it being a foreign troll account. Foreign troll accounts pretend to be people you agree with so that they can pull you along with them. They're not there to push you away. They're not there to get in a fight. They're there to get you to believe something you were already inclined to believe. But that thing is going to be in the direction that they want to go. So let's get a little bit legal nerdy for a second, although not that nerdy because the president is tweeting about it. Last week, President Trump tweeted, repeal section 230 with two exclamation points. I'm going to have to dive back into my communications law class, which was a long time ago. But I want to talk about 230 a little bit with you and the implications of President Trump's tweet and where where we could go. So Section 230, just to lay the groundwork a little bit, of the Communications Decency Act, it's referring to a piece of that act from 1996. It says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So this allows companies like Facebook and Twitter to define themselves as platforms and not publishers, which gives them a lot of free reign and a lot of legal protection from litigation right now. So do you think that these social media companies should be granted immunity from responsibility for the content that appears on their platforms? And should we repeal Section 230? 
oh, that's a double-edged sword. And I'm, <laughs> I am, there's a big part of me that wants, that, that wants to just say, yeah, repeal it, burn it down. Yeah. But it protects you know, the good institutions too, that have those pages and pages of ethics to Jen's right. point. Exactly. But the platforms would fundamentally not be able to function. Yeah. If, if that were repealed. If every user on their platform was considered an author, a de facto employee, then it, there there would be no end of, of litigation. So it's ne- it's not going to be repealed. I mean, they're going to ensure that that never happens. And there's there's a line of politicians that, for various ideological reasons, that also don't want that to happen. And I don't think it will. But it's difficult. It's a difficult conversation to engage in because it, it is fundamentally in many respects, unfair. This problem came up in my law practice several times, actually, in the context of the Anti-Terrorism Act, where Facebook, Twitter, these other entities were getting sued for aiding and abetting terrorism because they provided a platform for recruiting in these countries across the world. And their defense was Section 230, you know, we can't be held responsible for any of this. And there were some creative arguments in the courts about how, um, and they've even started to do this with President Trump, they editorialize, they call tweets now certain things or say this is coming from a certain place or remove tweets from the platform. And when you start to editorialize, you definitely get into the realm of publisher and start to lose those protections. They didn't make it all the way, and the Supreme Court has not ruled on it yet. I suspect that they will at one point. But, I mean, it comes up in all kinds of ways, not just the standard, you know, defamation or or you said something wrong on your platform. And it's a really fascinating, nerdy area of the law for some of us. Connected to this that I think is is interesting is the idea that the platforms have this anti-right-leaning bias. And that is one reason that, you know, the president is making these kinds of statements is because of the perception that the platforms have a bias against the right. And I understand why a lot of individuals have that perception, because when you're in your bubble, when you're in your silo, you only see what's happening in that silo. You don't see suspensions and action taken by the platforms against the other side, because you're not engaged in those conversations. You're not there to see it happen. You only see it happening to your friends, your followers, and those that follow you. So I understand why that perception is would, would be there, but I'm, I, I honestly don't think it's true. And that's that's been very frustrating because it's also a very difficult thing. I, I put a lot of time into trying to think of, a, of an academic study I could do to show that if there's bias or not. And it's, it's a very, very difficult issue to try to address, especially given the, the data that, that you can pull from the platforms. I honestly think that the, that the perception of this right-wing bias has had some negative consequences, though, especially when it comes to something like QAnon. I think that the, the QAnon conspiracy would have been shut down far earlier than it was and probably would have been shut down more thoroughly than it has been now if there wasn't this perception of right-wing bias that the platforms are always nervous about. They were very aware of, of that perception and, and they guard against it. Yeah. And QAnon went on for three years. I mean, Reddit yeah. is a different platform, but they shut it down a pretty, and, and it's, it might be apple and oranges with Reddit, but the fact is Facebook didn't take action on that. I mean, I'm glad they did, but they didn't take action on that for three years. Yeah. 
and the damage is really done. And I'm again, I'm glad they're they're thinking about it now. But it's really interesting politically to think why now and why not three years ago. So there is so much politics to all of this, of course. And this also reminds me of something. As I was doing research, there's a NYU professor Adam Alter, and he explained how tech heads. So even, you know, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and as a mom, this really struck me, mom of two, they didn't give their kids devices. Even when the iPad first came out, Steve Jobs did not let his kids have it. Bill Gates did not let his kids have devices until like 12 years old. And Adam Alter's point is don't get high on your own supply, which is fascinating to think about because a lot of this is on us. A lot of this as parents, as consumers, just being media literate as well, it's really interesting to kind of take it from that perspective that we are ultimately very responsible as well. Although there should be some, there there will be more discussion on Capitol Hill about regulation and maybe breaking up these companies. Um, they compared it in the, the judiciary report to the railroad industry in the 20s. And I think that's really interesting to think about historically. But it, a lot of it is also, I mean, do you think a lot of it is on, on us in education and media literacy? Unfortunately, yes. I mean, the, the platforms are drug dealers and, and the drug they're selling is dopamine. And I'll tell you what, my daughters, they're, they're going to find someplace else to get their dopamine for, for, for years to come while, while they're living in, in my house because it, it can be dangerous. But at the end of the day, we have to accept some responsibility. I want my roads to be safe. I want the car that I drive in to be safe with a functioning airbag and, and brakes. But when I go out on the highway, I'm still going to try to be a safe driver. And, and I think we have to use so, treat social media in the same way. We have to be aware of the dangers and take responsibility for some of that ourselves. Jen, I want to go back to the earlier part of the point you just made about the timing of the Facebook announcement with QAnon and the political impact that it's all having, because they made that announcement in October in the run-up to arguably the most important election in our history. So I want to talk about something that Paul Begala said on on our show recently about his guests for October, and that's deep fakes. So a couple of weeks ago, we had him on, and he guessed at what he thought the October surprise would be. And this is what he said. Russia will produce fake evidence, fraudulent evidence that they will then leak. They'll hack somebody. They'll penetrate somebody's email. They'll release her or his emails, and then they'll salt it with this fraudulent stuff. So there'll be real stuff in there. Like we learned John Podesta's family secret for making risotto in the Hillary email hack. That was a real email. John makes great risotto. They're going to salt that stolen information with fraudulent alleged evidence. And they're going to use deep fake videos, which they did not have access to in 2016. There's now technology, and Russia has it, that can allow them to manufacture a video that looks absolutely authentic, absolutely real, but is absolutely fraudulent. So for the last question, and as we all prepare ourselves to be as civic-minded as possible and police ourselves on social media highways, explain what deep fakes are and if you share Paul Begala's fear about Russia using that technology in cyber warfare, particularly in 2020. Yeah, so deep fakes are uh, the use of technology to create video or audio that is fake but indistinguishable from the real thing. So, you know, creating a video of me doing something in the real world that I would didn't actually do, but 
is utterly believable that it looks like me and is me and, and, you know, my own wife would think it was me. Am I nervous about them? A little. I am sure that people will use them for disinformation purposes in the coming years, um, maybe even in the coming month. We've already seen what are called cheap fakes, fakes that are just passable enough, like the the video of, of Biden falling asleep during a, a television interview that, you know, was clearly taken from an actual television interview. They just manipulated his face. And and so I, I think we will see it. But I am not as afraid of deep fakes as, as many people are. I'm not afraid of deep fakes as much as I am just spicy memes. <laughs> I mean, memes are... <laughs> spicy memes. <laughs> Memes are a powerful force for disinformation. You can communicate a lot just by juxtaposing a, a short text with an image, and you can you can use those very effectively without without ever being caught. The, the issue with deep fakes is while they're going to be initially believable, they're also disprovable. And at the end of the day, you're probably only going to convince people again that were already inclined to believe the message that you were, you were putting out there. So it's, it's a bigger investment. It's a bigger risk because the, whatever network you use to put out a deep fake, you're putting that network at risk for bit for suspension. I mean, the cost there isn't, isn't, you know, truly great, but there is a cost and you, and a deep fake will eventually be identified as fake. Maybe there will be scenarios where that's not the case, but um, I would imagine in most scenarios they would be identified as fake for a variety of reasons. Whereas the disinformation we have out there right now, it's already effective for doing fundamentally the same thing a deep fake is going to do, which is communicating to a specific group of people to make them believe something they already wanted to believe. And the cost is lower. All right. Well, that is one of the few optimistic notes that we've had in this conversation <laughs> and in this year, quite frankly. The, the, deep the fakes, world is already horrible. Yeah, so. it's not so bad. So I yeah. think that's a great place to end. And Just Darren, watch out with the spicy memes. Yeah, yeah. right. The spicy yeah. memes. Spicy that memes. could be a spicy meme. That'll give you agita. That's for sure. Darren and Jen, thank you both so much for educating us and letting us share in the knowledge and what you guys are working on. And um, we should do it again soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Brody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.